And we asked the question last week, which Jesus are you serving? Because we looked here and we saw that this man named Barabbas, Barabbas means son of the father, and uh, it can be argued from an, an historical perspective that this man Barabbas, his full name, was Jesus Barabba or Jesus Barabba, Joshua, son of the father. And, and uh, Jesus was a very uh, popular, common name during this time. Uh, Jesus wasn't just the name of our Savior and our Messiah. Uh, many people had the name Jesus. And so here this man, Barabbas, uh, most likely Jesus, son of the Father. And, and we saw that he was a man that led insurrection against Rome. And everyone was looking to their Messiah to come to help them to overthrow their Ro- Roman occupiers, they thought. And they were trying to have this idea, they had this romantic notion of their Messiah coming to establish really as it is their kingdom, not really having a heart towards the Father's kingdom being established in our lives, but, but rather my kingdom established, my you know, rule and reign taken care of, Roman, the government, Roman occupiers thrown out, and I'm going to hitch my wagon to this guy, and I can have power, and I can have position, and I can be following after after him and and so this is really what they were looking to and and I asked the question last week which Jesus have you come to worship which Jesus have you sought to to rule and reign in your life are you looking for that Jesus that is preached in some pulpits across America today the Jesus that that is going to make your kingdom better here on earth or the Jesus of the Bible that you're going to surrender to and say, Lord, you are the Messiah and you've called me not to establish my rule here on earth, but to surrender everything to you, to offer you my heart and to allow you to come and rule and reign. And so this is the question we asked last week, which Messiah are you calling for? And here are these, these Jews crying out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Which one are we calling for? Are we calling for Barabbas, this person that's going to establish our rule, our reign? Or are we calling for Jesus? And we left off with Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd. What a sad commentary on his life. Pilate so consumed as it, as it is, ironically, with his power and his position and his paycheck, he's not so much unlike these people who are calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. He's making a decision that is in his best interest. He's making a decision to try and hold on to what's important to him. And so to gratify the crowd, he released Barabbas to them. According to Eusebius, who is a second century church historian, only a few years after this, Pilate had his governorship stripped away from him. Here, ironically, this man trying to hold on to everything and giving Jesus up so so that he could hold on to everything. He has his governorship stripped away from him. And and, uh, Eusebius tells us that he he fell out of favor with Rome and that he was exiled to Gaul, which is in uh, the region of modern-day France. Uh, And uh, we're told that he later committed suicide. I think if I were exiled to France, I might want to commit suicide myself. But uh, so at any rate, here he is. He's exiled to Gaul and he later commits suicide. 
As we begin today, I want to ask you to ponder this question. I want you to meditate on this truth. There isn't anything that you deny Jesus to attain that you will ever keep. There's nothing that you deny Jesus for in order to attain this that you will hold on to, that you will keep. If you deny Jesus for a relationship, you ladies, you, you sleep with some guy hoping that that will solidify the relationship, that he won't leave you if you sleep with him. Or uh, you abandon and forsake Jesus to, and, and you, you, you run off on your spouse going after somebody else, trying to attain happiness in, in some sort of earthly relationship. You will never keep that relationship. You deny Jesus and you lie about money to get something. You will never keep that which you're striving for. If you deny Jesus seeking entertainment or if you deny Jesus seeking anything in life, you will never be able to hold on to that which you get. I guarantee it. Pilate denied Jesus to hold on to his job and he ended up losing everything. But while it's true that you can't keep what you deny Jesus to get, it's also true that whatever you attain God's way can never be taken from you. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss... For Christ, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellent of excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, and listen to this. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Verse 12 there, very interesting. He says, I, not that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. If you're a note taker, you might want to do this. Circle lay hold of that phrase next to it. Write this, kata lambano. Not only is it fun to say, but it's a cool Greek word. Kata lambano, it means to take possession of. And really what Paul is saying here is the awesome truth of Christianity that I don't have to earn a right standing with God. All I have to do is take possession of it. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm pressing forward to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also ta- already taken a hold of me. I'm trying to reaching out to take possession of something that already belongs to me. It's already been trusted to me. It's already been given to me. Cada lambano to take possession of. 
Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Interesting thing about being an heir. Uh, Brenda and I, years ago, um, in, in our very poor days, young children, new, newly married, you newlyweds who are struggling right now, you know exactly where I'm talking about, you know, the macaroni and cheese uh, weeks uh, that you have. And we had, I had this time uh, that I was getting off of work. We decided that we were going to take a vacation and not having two nickels to rub together. It was going to be one of those vacations where, you know, you, you drive uh, uh, most or you drive the, the distance to get there and you make arrangements in one of those hotels where, you know, when you go in, you kind of, it's a toss up whether or not you're going to go back and sleep in the car kind of hotel, you know, so we're getting ready. We're going to go up to Mammoth and go skiing. And it was going to be a marathon up there. And we're going to stay overnight uh, in a hotel. We're going to ski one day and we're going to come back. That was our big vacation. And so we're getting ready to go on this vacation and there's a knock on the door and it was a courier and this courier was delivering a check from my trust fund. See, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, a guy by the name of Roy Ferguson, was an amazing man. This guy was uh, traveling to Alaska with his father when he was nine years old. Uh, and, and, and this is my great-grandfather. You can imagine you know, what the year was. And the mode of transportation at that time, the only way you could get there was by ship. And then the last ship that was leaving before the winter set in, before everything froze over, uh, he was supposed to be on that ship with his father as they were leaving. His father was there, worked for a, 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 a petroleum company or something. I can't, I can't remember. But they had gone up there to do business, he with his dad. And they got on the ship, at least so his father thought, and they set sail. And his father realized too late that his son wasn't on the ship with him. My great-grandfather had missed the boat, literally. And so here this kid, nine years old, they, could, they, they can't turn back, and now he's stuck in Alaska for the winter. And he ends up hooking up with this gambler, uh, totally a script for a movie, and, and ends up staying in Alaska till he was in his 80s. Uh, he's there in Alaska. He makes his fortune in Alaska. He ends up owning a lumber company, making, you know, just money hand over fist. He was a mayor of Fairbanks at one time, uh, my great grandfather. And so here, this man who lived this amazing life and made his fortune, uh, he used to, for, for fun, go gold prospecting. And, and one night at a, at a dinner party, he called my mom, his, his granddaughter and a, and a couple of the other ladies into a room and he took out this little little velvet pouch and he dumped it out on the bed. It was filled with gold nuggets that he himself had had panned for in the in the streams in Alaska. And my mom took one. She has it to this day in a safe deposit box. Two Troy ounce gold nugget that, you know, just one. She said it wasn't even the largest gold nugget that he had in this little pouch. You know, this was my great grandfather, just a, a man's man, you know. And so here this man who, by the way, I never met. I mean, I wasn't even born when he died, uh, I, my mom was pregnant with me when my great-grandfather died. And yet my great-grandfather remembered me in his will. And so there I am in uh, this winter day in 1988, getting ready to go with my wife out on this humble, meager vacation. And the courier shows up at the door with a check for tens of thousands of dollars. 
Have you seen the movie Dumb and Dumber where they go to Aspen and they're spending money like crazy? That was our vacation, man. It was crazy. We were just going around and just having the most incredible time. It was like, thank you, great grandpa, you know? This is a great picture of us where Christ is concerned. He, we are heirs to his incredible work and to his incredible fortune. And he has made you and me heirs. And all we need to do is, by faith, receive the check that he's already written for us. You see, my great-grandfather there remembers me, sets money aside for me in a trust for the time that I become an adult, that this money will be released to me. And so too, our Lord Jesus has all of these treasures available for you and me that we as heirs just needing to lay hold of, to take possession, catalambano, take possession of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of for you. Luke one forty nine proclaims this. It says, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And Jesus indeed has done great things for us. And so again, back here in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, we read that Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, wanting to hold on to his job. He delivers Jesus to them. And it says he delivered Jesus to them after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, what does it mean to be scourged and why is this important to us today? What does this have to do with us laying a hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of for us? Well, this word scourged, it's the word flagellum. And flagellum actually is referring to the implement of torture. It's talking about a device. If, if In this day and age, if you said, you know, he was scourged, it wouldn't be unlike somebody saying today, well, the guy was maced or the guy was pepper sprayed. You would, oh, it's the implement of, of torture, is the implement of, of the delivery system. And so Jesus being, uh, being uh, uh, um, scourged here, uh, it's talking about this, this implement of torture, this flagellum. A flagellum was, uh, was uh, basically a wooden handle about six to eight inches long. And attached to the wooden ha- handle were these leather straps. And then also uh, the leather straps within them would be uh, pieces of chain that were attached to this. There would be pieces of bone, pieces of broken glass, and pieces of barbed metal. And the way that the flagellum worked, the victim was stretched out over a post so that all of their back muscles would be stretched taut. Uh, They didn't want any elasticity at all in the striking surface. They wanted it pulled absolutely taut, uh, as, as stretched as it could be, so that they could inflict the maximum amount of damage. And they would take this flagellum, and they would lay it across the back. And, and I'm not talking about just laying it. They would, they would strike the back. But they did it in such a way where they would strike and there would be a momentary pause. And then they would pull it. And the reason for that was so that as this thing struck, those sharp metal barbs and, and the glass and so on, that it would stick into the skin. And, and then, as after it stuck into the skin, then with, with as much force as they could, they would pull it off of the skin. 
And so there was the damage from this impact, and then there was the damage from this being ripped across and out of the skin. Also embedded within these leather straps were lead weights. And so physiologically, uh, it it was intended to to produce uh, an incredible amount of damage. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, he described the physical result of scourging. Uh, how that when those lead weights would hit the skin, that it would cause the skin to swell. And then as the, the, the sharp objects were pulled through the skin, how it would rip the flesh off. And the way he describes it, that scourging would expose muscles. It would expose the ribs. It would expose internal organs, the lungs, the kidneys, the intestines. And it was often in and of itself fatal. This scourging not only afflicted the back, but it would afflict the chest as well as that flagellum, as it was laid across the back, it would wrap around, even around the side and across the chest so that when they would pull it, it would just basically turn into hamburger, this person who was being beaten. And this is what our Lord was subjected to. This is what Pilate prescribed would happen to Jesus. You know, as Christians, we hear all the time, it's the cornerstone of our messages, how Christ has suffered on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And and even as I describe the beating of the flagellum to you, most of you, many of you, you've already heard these things. And and it's just, it's horrible that that we hear this so often. It's like, yeah, you know, I've heard that. But it's a horror, it's a horrible thing to just imagine that a human being would go through that, let alone our Lord and Savior going through that, who himself is sinless, perfect, not deserving of that. We recognize that it's we, we're the ones that are deserving of that. But it reveals just the horrible nature of sin. That, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, when it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We think about that in light of scourging, and you realize, well, that's, that's the penalty. That's the price of sin. I mean, as you just think about the way that you have sinned against the Lord in this last week, and realizing that's... The penalty, that's what has to happen. That's how ugly sin is, that it would require such a thing. Now, I've always wondered, and I don't know, maybe you have too, why did Pilate have Jesus scourged? I mean, as we read through the Gospels, it's pretty clear there that Pilate thought he was an innocent man. And so you're like, okay, well, all right, so you, you prescribed the death penalty. You said he needs to go to the cross. It's a horrible way to die. We're, we're actually going to look at crucifixion next week and, and physiologically what that does to the, the body and, 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 and what that penalty was. And, and so you think, you know, Pilate, here you've, 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 you've sentenced the man to die already. Why do you have to scourge him? Why, why did you have to do that? Especially if you thought that this was an innocent man. Well, we get a partial answer here in this verse that we've just read in in, uh, verse 15, that he wanted to gratify the crowd. They wanted Jesus's blood. He was going to give them Jesus's blood. And so we see that answer there. We see the, the partial answer that he wanted to keep his job. And so, you know, here he is satiating the crowd. 
But John's gospel reveals another purpose for us as well. John says that after Pilate scourged Jesus, he again brought him before the people. And he said to them in John 19, 4, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now that word fault in the Greek that he mentions in John, it's the word accusation. And while it's true that Pilate had Jesus scourged to gratify the crowd, it is also true that scourging served two tactical purposes in interrogation where accusation is concerned. Let me, let me explain that to you. The first thing that scourging was intended to do in the, the trial process was that it was intended to bring about, to elicit a confession of guilt. And so when they would when they were interrogating somebody, you've heard of somebody getting the fifth degree or third degree or whatever. Uh, and, you know, we have all of the, the, the rights here in America and the ACLU has put all these sort of conditions and, and terms. We can't even we have to be real careful with how we te- treat terrorists even, you know, and, and you know, don't you know, you can't torture anybody. Well, the Romans didn't have this. That torturing was fair game. And so if they could torture somebody to elicit any information if for a confession of guilt, well, that was just used to further have something to accuse this person of. And so even though Pilate thought that Jesus was guilty, just in just in the course of regular interrogation, Pilate was going to have Jesus scourged. Because the idea is, as you do this to somebody, as you stretch them out, as you're throwing a flagellum across the back and ripping it, ripping it open, and as your ribs and your internal organs are now going to be exposed, don't you think if you're guilty, you're going to confess? Absolutely. And so here Jesus, having all of these accusations against him, Pilate puts him there. And the, the way that scourging would work, the sentence called for 40 lashes. And so as the lashes would be laid on, one right after the other, there would be a scribe that would stand nearby to record every word that the victim spoke so that he, they could elicit this confession from that person. And typically, as they confessed, the lashes would lessen in severity. Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus opened not his mouth. He didn't utter a word. And and why would he? He had no crime to confess. He was an innocent man. And so here he received 40 lashes with the damage being so absolutely horrible. To his body, and yet he opened not his mouth. And that's why Pilate told the Jews when he brought him back out after scourging him, I find no fault in him. Trust me, if he were guilty, after 40 lashes, he would have said something. That's what he was talking about. But there was also another purpose for scourging. And this is, has an impact on us today. This is the reason, the reason why Jesus' scourging means something to you and me today, how we live our life. The second reason for scourging was to, implement, uh, to implicate co-conspirators. As that, as that scribe stood by recording everything that you would confess, not only would you confess what you had done, but you would rat out your co-conspirators. And it was the way that they would just rid the, the town of, of anybody who would be inclined to break the law. We're going to get you. We're going to get everybody that was involved in the crime with you. We're going to get that out of you one way or the other. And so, you know, you might as well tell us now. But here again, Jesus made no confessions. He took the full 
force of those 40 blows without saying a word. Isaiah the prophet prophesied at this moment. And he said this in Isaiah 53, 7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You see, if Jesus had been inclined to open his mouth when he was scourged, they would have been there a long time. Because if Jesus did begin to rat out, as it were, all of his co-conspirators, how long do you think it would take for him to list the names that were guilty of the crimes that he was being scourged for? Your name, my name, the name of everyone who, who has, has lived. He would be giving them more names than they could possibly write down. Because we're all guilty of the crimes that Jesus was, was beaten for. And here's the point. Because Jesus endured scourging, not only can't we can be convicted for our sins, but we can't even be accused of them. Again, Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for all for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. You see, the thing is, is that Jesus was scourged. They were looking for him to rat out co-conspirators. And he didn't mention your name. And he didn't mention my name. Romans eight thirty three asks this question. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Why is that important? Because even though God won't entertain accusations against us, and that's why Christ went through the beating that he went through so that nobody could make an accusation against you because he kept his mouth shut. There was no, there was no implication for, for you because he took it. But even though that's true, that doesn't stop Satan from trying. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Revelation chapter 12 tells us that he accuses you and me before the throne of God day and night. That doesn't mean that Satan is, is omnipresent. Doesn't mean he's there all the time. It just means that he's incessant. It means he, he's continually, incessantly like a, like a bug when you're on vacation and, and on a picnic. And it just, it's incessantly just always right there. And this is Satan before the throne of God hurling accusations about God's people. And Satan does this with you and me as well, doesn't he? I know maybe it's not Satan himself personally, but we're told a third of the angels fell with Satan. And so that demonic realm is right there. And Satan being the father of lies, Satan being the accuser of the brethren means that we have an enemy who constantly tries to accuse us. And sometimes we fall for the lies that the enemy tells us. And he's there and he's whispering. And we've talked about this before, how Satan, you know, the enemy works both sides of the fence. And on this side of the fence, he's tempting you to sin and he's leading you astray. And then when you fall into sin and temptation and you yield to it, then he jumps over on the other side of the fence and now he becomes your accuser. He's like, oh, you call yourself a Christian. Look at what you've done. You can't go to God now. God won't listen to your prayers. God's not going to forgive that, you hypocrite. What do you think you're doing? And see, what Satan wants to do is he wants to keep you and me from coming to God. Hey, listen, we are guilty. We're guilty as sin. We, we are just, you know, it, yes, everything that Satan says is true. But Jesus was scourged. To take away not only our sin, he went to the cross not only to take away our sins, but his scourging and his remaining silent 
was for the sole purpose that not only wouldn't you have to to stand trial, but it was so that there were no accusations made against you. So he's not going to entertain the accusations that come. Jesus would say, no, I took those. You can't bring one accusation against my daughter, against my son, that I'm going to listen to because that has been paid in full. They have not been implicated. You're not implicated. You're not, you know, here's the thing. With our children's ministry, we're really careful. I use this as an example. We're really careful in our children's ministry to screen every volunteer that will come in. And, and we, we go through extensive background checks and we're very careful to, to make sure that, that all of our policies and procedures are there to take care of your kids in such a way that they are watched over, protected, that they're taught the word of God and that those people that are there are, are doing everything their level best to protect them. We, we don't let anybody alone with a child. We make sure that there's, there's multiple people there. We make sure that they're, they've got background screened and fingerprinted, all that and everything. We want to make sure these people are, you know, who are, you know, they're, they're good people. Why do we do, go to such great lengths? Well, of course, it's to protect your kids, but it's also to protect the church. Because even an allegation, even if it was not proven true, an allegation would do damage to the reputation of this church. If you heard some church, oh, wow, I heard, you know, gosh, there was all kinds of allegations that were made. It would, it would, it would sully the reputation in that church. So we're very careful. We don't even want an allegation to be able to be made. And so we go way overboard. Well, that's the whole idea here. Jesus was scourged so that the enemy can't even make an allegation against you. He kept his mouth shut. He took the scourging upon himself. And here's the point for you today. You need to understand that Satan has an objective and his objective is to get you to give up. His objective is to be able to accuse you and to have you somehow buy into his lie that God is shocked by your sin and that now God is is not going to allow you to come before him. And that's not true. Because of Jesus' scourging, we're free. We're not free to sin, but we're free from accusation. And so what does that mean to us today? Well, it means we don't listen to Satan's lies. That's what it means. It means that when we blow it, we need to run to God because he stretched his back out and he took the scourging so that no accusation could be brought against you and be brought against me. Verse 16. After he'd had him scourged, and he sent him to be crucified. Verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. This is a palace that was built by Herod the Great. And the Romans, when they occupied Jerusalem, they took over this palace as one of their garrisons. And, and so this is where the, 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 the Roman uh, troops were, were stationed. And they took Jesus in there. By the way, it's still there to this day. This is one of the few places in Jerusalem when you go over that, they, that it actually the, the floor of this praetorium has been unearthed. And, it, and they, can, they can prove that this is the actual floor that was here at the precise time that this took place. When I, when I was over there, this was one of those places. This and the Garden of Gethsemane for me uh, and the Garden Tomb were, were one of the few places where I had a profound just impact, just a, an encounter with God, just re- recognizing as I stood there, this is the very floor that my Lord was beaten on. 
And they led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. Now, where did they get this from? Well, Luke's gospel tells us that when he, when, when he appeared before Pilate, Pilate was reluctant to, to condemn him. And, and in the course of the conversation, they mentioned that, he was, that Jesus was a troublemaker from Galilee all over the place. And he heard that he was from Galilee. He sent him to Herod, uh, uh, King Herod the Great's uh, grandson, who was now ruling in the region of Galilee, he saw an opportunity to pass the buck. And so he sent him to, to appear before Herod. And when he appeared before Herod, Luke's gospel tells us that they, a robe, they, they put a, a real fancy robe on him there. And they sent him back. And so this is the robe that now they've clothed him with here. And they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. This is the only crown that Jesus, our king, ever wore. It was a crown of thorns. Think about that for a minute. Where do thorns come from? Genesis chapter 3. And God talked to Adam. And he said, listen. You're in sin. Cursed is the ground because of your sin. He says, thistles and thorns will it produce. Jesus crowned the only crown that he would ever wear, a crown of thorns as a, as a result of the sin of mankind, as a curse for our sin. And there he is wearing this crown of thorns on his head. Verse 18 says, they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck him on the head with a reed and they spat on him. And the way this is phrased in the Greek, it means they continually hit him and continually spat upon him. One day I will look upon the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, I will see him who was pierced. I will see the lamb who was slain. His face given over to these who would beat him. His beard, Isaiah says, ripped out of his face. And Jesus did this for us. It says, in bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And of course, they were doing it in mockery. Verse 20 says, and when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him. And they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Philippians 2.10 tells us that there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But these men, at this time, they're doing it in mockery of the Lord. Verse 21 says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha. In Latin, it's the name Calvary. That's where we get the name of our church. We're Calvary Chapel. The place of the skull, the place our Lord was crucified. There is a lot to say in this text and a lot that we're going to cover next week. But as we draw to a close today, I want to just make a couple of observations. And and, and I ask you to sort of reflect on that this week. As you consider what our Lord has gone through for you. It's significant to me that somebody was called upon to carry 
Christ's cross. And I want to be very careful with how I word this because I don't want you to come out of here with the wrong idea. Jesus is our Messiah. He's our Lord. He's our King. He alone is the propitiation for our sins. He's the only one that could die and suffer on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But he required help carrying his cross. Now, could God have made him, empowered him to be able to carry that cross himself? Yes. I'm not suggesting that man somehow plays some sort of a part in the redemptive process of God. Uh, We do, but not the way that that I want you to, to maybe think that I'm implying. For whatever reason, for whatever purpose, God had it be... That Jesus, going to the cross, doing the most important work that our Lord ever did, would require the help of someone to pick up and carry the cross. And I'll tell you why I think that the Lord allowed it to be this way, why he designed it this way. Because you remember when the Lord was rebuking Peter. Peter had pulled Jesus aside there in Mark's gospel in chapter 8. He said, Jesus telling him, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. You're going to kick, kick Rome out and I'm going to get the corner office and all that stuff. And the Lord said, get behind me, Satan. We talked about that last week. The very next verse, Jesus pulled everybody together. And as he pulled everyone together, he said to them, Mark eight thirty four. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And I would submit to you that the Lord needed help with his cross because you and me, we need help to bear our cross. And if you notice here, here's this Simon, this guy from Cyrene. And his cross is, his cross is thrust upon him. And that's the way the crosses that we have to bear in life typically come to us. They're usually things that are thrust upon us. We weren't expecting it. And where, where the Lord would call upon a stranger, it wasn't the Lord, it was the, the troops that, that pressed him into service. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. But as this stranger called upon, pressed into service to bear the cross, 125 pounds, 300 pound cross, that you and I are going to have that time when we need to call upon someone to help us bear our cross. Only in our case, it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who helps us to bear our cross. But there's something else here I want you to notice, and this is what I would ask you to really just chew on this week. Simon, Cyrene, carried Jesus' cross. This is the bullseye, the culmination. This is the most important thing that Jesus ever did in his ministry here on earth. And I ask you, where is the other Simon? Where's Simon Peter? Simon Peter said, Lord, even if everyone else forsakes you, I will never forsake you. And here Jesus comes to the apex, the crowning moment of his ministry. And where's Simon Peter? He abandoned him, failed him. And so a stranger from another country, just a passerby, is the one who would help Jesus 
fulfill the most important part of his ministry. And here's the point of personal application and the point I I ask you to pray about this week. If you're not there, God will use somebody else. Make no mistake about it. God will get his work done. Dad, if you're not there for your kids, God will use someone else. Moms, if you're not there for your kids, God will use someone else. Servant of God, if you're not there for the Lord's use in the work of the ministry, God will use